welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 39, The Brothers, How to Get the Best from Your Children. Last time I looked at the self-tormentor by Terence that set father and sons at loggerheads over women and money. That theme of conflict between fathers and sons is continued in The Brothers, but it's quite a different play, however thematically similar. The discussion within the play about the best way to bring up a son is treated very seriously, and there are less truly comic moments here. Perhaps the best comparison to draw is with what we would now be termed as a comedy drama. The problem with that form is the difficulty in hitting the right tone. The balance between the comedy and the drama is notoriously difficult to pull off. We don't have records of how well-received the play was on its first outing, but its rather wordy nature and very gentle comedy may have been something of a surprise to the audience. That said, and as you will see, there is still plenty of familiar things on show. The Brothers, dated to 160 BCE, is Terence's last surviving work. We have that date exactly because the play is recorded as being presented at the Games held to honour the Roman general Lucius Aemilius Paulus. He came from an aristocratic patrician family who had a history of fine military service. His own father had been killed in the Second Punic Wars. After his own military service, he served as a military tribune, as an adeli, and then as praetor in 191 BCE. He took several more military commands, but was not elected consul until 168, along with Crassus. The Senate then appointed him a commander of the expedition designed to bring the Third Macedonian War to an end. This protracted conflict had been running for several years and had resulted in at least one terrible defeat for the Roman army. So when Paulus was able to defeat the Macedonian army and capture the king and his family, he was hailed as a true hero of the Republic. On his return march, he plundered cities that were sympathetic to the Macedonian cause and is said to have sent many ships laden with booty back to Rome and 150,000 people into slavery. He was granted a spectacular triumph on his return to Rome, and the honorific Macedonicus was officially added to his name. He was elected censor, but became ill in 160 BCE and died in office. His sons organised the games to celebrate his life. Paulus had two sons and two daughters from his first marriage, and two sons and a daughter from his second. Having four sons was considered to be far too many for a man to support through the Roman system of patronage for gaining public office so his oldest sons were given up for adoption. The younger son was adopted by his cousin, the son of Scipio Africanus, and became Publius Cornelius Scipio Aemilianus. This is the Scipio, who was a great general in his own right and supporter of writers and artists with a Hellenistic mindset, which included Terence. I told his life story in relation to Terence in episode 37, Terence, the Bloom of Youth but I didn't make it clear that Scipio Aemilianus was an adopted son of the Scipio family rather than a natural one, so I'm happy to clarify that now. And perhaps it's no surprise, therefore, that we find Terence, his protégé, presenting a play about fathers and sons at games honouring his deceased father. As usual for a Terence play, he opens with a prologue that doesn't relate the plot of the play, but deals with criticisms of his work. This is the opening passage of the prologue, which sounds a bit petulant, but also shows how much Terence was concerned by the criticisms. All we need to know for now is that this play is taken from a play by Menander, with the same name, and includes a scene from Companions in Death by Dephilus. 
It's the inclusion of this scene that had been omitted by Plautus in his version of the De Phyllis play that Terence is defending. So he says, The poet is well aware that his writing is scrutinised by unfair critics, and that his enemies are out to deprecate the play that we are about to present. He therefore intends to state the charge against him in person, and you shall judge whether his conduct deserves praise or censure. Champions in Death, a cosa comedy by De Phyllis. Plautus made a Latin version of it with the same name. In the beginning of the Greek play, there's a young man who abducts a girl from a slave dealer. Plautus left out the incident altogether, so the present author took it for his The Brothers and translated it word for word. This is a new play we are going to act. Watch carefully and see if you think it is plagiarism or the restoration of a passage that was carelessly omitted. Now there has been much debate here about exactly how Terence's words should be interpreted. The Latin verbum de verbo literally means Terence translated word for word. Now that cannot literally be true, and he describes the Plautus play as made with the implication that it was prosaic. Now, we shouldn't expect Terence to automatically be in plays of Plautus or to acknowledge any debt to him, but it seems to me that the concern was about the lifting from Plautus and possibly the addition of something from another play to a Greek original, even though Plautus omitted the passage from his earlier play. The Plautus version nor the De Phyllis original survive, so once again it's not possible to make exact comparisons. Whatever the cause, these appear to be pretty esoteric points that Terence expects an audience to appreciate. Where Plautus more commonly simply stated his Greek source of a play and got on with it, Terence seems very earnest about the issue. Was that because he expected the audience to be very well educated in the subtleties of playwriting and theatre generally? Or perhaps the comments are just aimed at the patricians and his supporters, who would have understood his concerns. The prologue continues with praise of those men, and particularly those associated with being his close collaborators. As usual, he ends with a plea for the goodwill and enthusiasm of the audience. The play opens in the usual street scene, in front of houses and with urgency as the audience are dropped into the story in progress. Mikio is concerned for Iskinus, who we later learn is his adopted son, who has not returned from a party from last night. It's clear from his monologue that he cares deeply for the young man, and his worry is about concern for his safety, not for any worry about what he might have been up to during the night. He then gives us the backstory. Demia, his brother, is a farmer and father of two sons, Iskinus and Setsipho. Mikio is unmarried and has no offspring something that he always regretted very much as he always felt he would have much to offer to a family. Having discussed this one day when the boys were young, Demia agreed to allow Mikio to adopt one of his sons. So it came to be that Demia raised Stetsifo and Mikio took charge of Iskinus. Mikio admits that he and his brother have completely opposite views about how to bring up good sons. Where Demia is strict and authoritarian, Mikio is indulgent and allows his adopted son to do more or less what he likes. Demia is pleased with the results of his rigid tutoring, as his son has turned out to be a hard-working young man who saves his earnings diligently and doesn't drink or waste himself on frivolous entertainments. Mikio explains how he favours the approach of letting young men enjoy themselves and to not be afraid to tell their father of what they've been up to. He reasons that if they feel they have to lie to their family, then what will stop them doing the same out in society? He knows that Demia doesn't approve, as he comes to him often, telling him of the terrible things his son has been up to, being seen at parties and with low-born women, 
but he remains convinced that his path is correct and a son's loyalty, good behaviour and sense of right and wrong has to be born from a love of his father, not fear. All of this is told in a long monologue by Mikio, and there's no stage action until Demia comes on full of news about Iskinus. He tells in breathless tones how the boy broke down the door of a house in town, beat up the master of the house and has run off with a slave girl that he's been carrying on with. It's a terrible scandal, and as far as Demia is concerned, all Mikio's fault, thanks to his lax parenting. He only has to look at the good behaviour of Setsifo to see that. Mikio disagrees, believing that as long as he can afford to fund Iskinus's excesses and where necessary pay for any damage, then all will be well in the end. Demia is frustrated, but acknowledges that he has no responsibility for the boy now and is just glad that his own son has turned out so much better. Left alone again, Mikio admits that Iskinus has at times treated him badly and taken him and his generosity for granted. But he's determined to know all the facts relating to this latest news before he considers any censure. Iskinus then comes on, with Sanio, a slave dealer, Bacchus, one of his girls, and Parmeno, Iskinus's servant. Sanyo protests at the way he's being treated, given that he's a legitimate businessman, while Iskinus is high-handed with him and threatens violence if he won't let him buy the girl off him. Sanyo refuses, and they take the girl inside. Sanyo worries to himself that they're all out to swindle him. Cyrus, Mikio's servant, comes out to deal with Sanyo. He knows that Sanyo is leaving for Cyprus soon, so will need to conclude his business here quickly, and he bullies him into giving him a bribe to sort things out and accepting cost price for the girl. Setsifo enters, returning from town in high spirits, and it becomes clear that Iskinus has taken the slave girl on his behalf. He's madly in love with her, but afraid to admit it to his father, who he fears greatly. He's very grateful to his brother for taking on these two debts for him, a monetary one and a debt of shame. Cyrus assures Setsifo that his father will not hear of his involvement with the girl and sends him off inside to be reunited with her as he hurries after the slave dealer. Sostrata enters with a nurse asking how her daughter's pregnancy is progressing. The nurse says that the birth is coming soon and is concerned that they have not been able to contact Iskinus, who is the father. Just then, Sostrata's elderly slave Geta hurries on. He's in a state of great excitement. What a state of affairs! Oh, world-seek counsel! There must be a remedy to this, but I can't see it. My mistress and her daughter are in such trouble, such shame! There is no way out. Misery, violence and destitution are all we can look forward to. Even when Sostrata interrupts, it takes three pages of dialogue for the servant to finally get his message out. He reports that Iskinus has found a new girl and abandoned them all. They consider trying to keep the whole business quiet, but then Sostrata resolves to tell everybody what has happened, as she has the ring that Iskinus gave her daughter as a sign of his good intentions, and on their side they haven't done anything wrong. Geta is dispatched to a long-time family friend, Hegio, for more advice and help, and the nurse to get the midwife. Sostrata goes back into the house. Demia enters, having heard that Setsifo was also involved with the abduction of the girl. He engages in conversation with Cyrus to find out what has happened, but Cyrus confuses him between talk of the fish he's just purchased and deliberately winding him up about whether or not his son was involved. Eventually, Demia believes that his son is not involved and has left town to head back to the family farm. 
As he's about to leave, he spots Hegio arriving, and is pleased to see an old friend and honourable man. But Hegio soon recounts how Iskinus has got Pamphyla pregnant, and is now abandoning her for a slave girl after having promised Sestrata that he would behave honourably. Demia can only lament his son's bad behaviour, and say that he's ashamed of the whole situation. Just then, they hear the cries of Pamphyla as her labour begins. Hegio hopes Demia will do the right thing for the girl, and becomes a mouthpiece of Terence when he says, The easier your life, the more powerful people like you become. The more wealth you get, the better the fortune and rank you acquire. The more you should judge carefully what is right and fair if you want to be known as an honest man. They all depart, and Setsifo and Cyrus come out. Setsifo is happy to hear that his father is back at the farm so he can enjoy his day, but concerned that the farm is in fact quite close to the city so he could return quickly. Which is exactly what he does as they're discussing different ideas for excuses Setsifo might give for his absence from the farm. He's bundled into the house as Demia reappears and Cyrus tells Demia that Setsifo is blaming him, Cyrus, for the whole sorry business and has given him a beating for his trouble. Demia praises his son's manhood and asks where Mikio is. Cyrus gives him some lengthy and convoluted directions about where he can be found in town and Demia goes off in search of him. Cyrus goes to find some food as Mikio and Hegio arrive back from town. Mikio has appraised Hegio of the truth of the situation and they go in to reassure Sostrata. Iskinus rushes on stage in a state of confusion. The old serving woman saw him off roundly when he bumped into her in town and now he is torn between telling Sostrata and Pamphyla the truth and betraying his brother. He is deliberating with himself when Mikio comes out and decides his son deserves some teasing to punish him for his lack of trust in his father. He says that arrangements have been made for Hegio to marry Pamphyla as he is her next of kin and the law demands it. It's the same plot device that Terence used in The Self-Tormentor and more significantly in Formio. It seems that to be an ancient Greek law that appealed to the Roman sense of humour. Mikio claims that the family would let the father of the child marry her, but the mother refuses to name him, so all will soon be settled, and they'll all be leaving soon for distant parts. This, as expected, drives Iskinus mad, and he ends with a passionate outburst. What about the unhappy man who first loved her? For all I know, the poor soul still loves her, and passionately. What do you suppose that he will feel when she's denied him and taken off before his very eyes? I tell you, father, it's sinful and a scandal. Is that Terence railing against the marriage conventions of the time that denied love matches? Perhaps. It's about as political as the play gets, if it is more than a passionate character being wound up for the laugh. Mikio then reveals that he knows the truth of the situation and gives a very reasoned speech, to the Roman ear if not so much to us, about the nature of the wrongs that Aeschylus has done. He forgives the seduction, pointing out that many good men have committed the same crime, but finds fault with the way that Aeschylus then ignored the situation. This, he says, is the greatest wrong, a wrong that he has done to himself, to the girl and to the child. And after the telling off, he agrees that they can marry. Aeschylus is, of course, overjoyed and praises his father, promising that he has learned his lesson. They go into the house to make the wedding preparations as Demia returns from town, having been unable to find Mikio. When he appears from the house, Demia can't wait to impart the latest bad news about Aeschylus, and can't believe that Mikio is taking it all so calmly. He says, If you really have no feelings about all of this, it would surely be only human to pretend that you did have... 
to which Mikio's response is, But I have arranged for him to marry the girl. Everything is settled and the wedding is imminent. I have removed all their fears. That, it seems to me, is the only human thing to do. But Demia is still confused and says, But are you really pleased with what you've done? Mikio's response doesn't please Demia, but in the humanist reading, this is the heart of the play. If I could alter the situation, then no. But as things are, I can't change anything, so I must accept it calmly. Life is a game of dice. If you don't get the throw you need, then you must use your skills to make the best of what has turned up. Mikio goes on to suggest that he will keep the slave girl on too and make her his partner. Demia is shocked at the scandalous idea of this threesome, and when Mikio suggests he join them to make up four, Demia is apoplectic, and is soon left alone on the stage to worry over the demise of his family's good name. A drunk Cyrus joins him and reveals between insults that Tsetsifo is in Mikio's house. Hearing this, Demia rushes in to rescue him, but he soon returns with Mikio, who reveals that he's been funding Tsetsifo as well as Iskinus and tries to reassure Demia that they are basically good men who will come right in the end and gain wisdom with age. Demia is not convinced, and says he will be removing his son to the farm first thing in the morning, and he will have the slave girl too, and he'll make her work hard and put her in her place. After a short interlude where the audience were possibly entertained with music, Demia comes out of Mikio's house in smart clothes. In a long monologue, he explains the change of heart he's had. He has seen his sons being so happy and convivial with Mikio, but they avoid and ignore him, so he has resolved to change his ways. He says, hard facts have shown me that a man gains most from forbearance and affection. He tries out being nice, first to Cyrus, then Geta, leaving both of them confused about the change. Iskinus comes out and complains at the fussy arrangements for the wedding and the time they're taking, and Demia, much to his surprise and gratitude, suggests forgetting about the bells and whistles and just getting on with it. He says that the slaves should break down the wall between the houses and just get everyone together for the wedding. Demia notes how well-liked he is now with just that little bit of good-natured behaviour, but also reveals something of his true intentions when he comments that Mikio will be picking up all the costs for this. He continues to push Mikio by pointing out that the families can be further united if Mikio were to marry the widow Sostrata. Initially, Mikio ridicules the idea, but under pressure from Iskinus, he reluctantly agrees. Fragments from Menander's original play suggest that in his version, Mikio was not against the wedding, so it seems this reluctance is an invention by Terence. Demia's next idea is that Hegio deserves some reward, and he should be given a property that Mikio usually rents out gifted to him. Mikio is reluctant again, but Demia reminds him of his own words about the older generation being too concerned about money, so Mikio feels obliged to agree to the plan. As Cyrus comes on to announce that the boundary wall has been breached, Demia suggests that this is the perfect moment to grant the slave his freedom, and for his wife too, and they deserve a stipend from Mikio. Ever more exasperated at Demia's generosity on his behalf, Mikio again reluctantly agrees, but then turns to Demia, demanding to know what he is up to. He replies, I wanted to show you that what our sons thought was your good nature and charm didn't come from a way of living which was sincere, or from anything right or good, but from your weakness, indulgence and extravagance. If the boys dislike my ways because I won't pander to their every wish, then I wash my hands of them. They can do what they like, 
But if they will acknowledge their youth and inexperience and take a word of advice or a reproof from me occasionally, well, then I'm happy to be their guide. To which Aeschylus heartily agrees and all go into Mikio's house for the wedding, asking for the applause of the audience as they leave. In the Brothers, the plot lines are simpler than in The Self-Tormentor and there is little plot-driven action. This really is a play of ideas that is carried along by the words of the characters rather than by their actions. The main theme is the question, should youth be allowed their time off the leash or should they be guided by the rules set by older generations? In this sense, it's a timeless piece and should resonate at any point in history. In the contemporary view at the time of writing, the arguments are focused on the two sides of the educational system, where the strict discipline favoured by the Conservative bloc in the city leadership was in opposition to the more liberal views coming in with the foreign influences coming into the Republic and, particularly, the advent of advancing Hellenism. The 160s BCE were a time of expansion in Rome as the Republic expanded into Greece and Asia Minor, and as a result, Rome became a very cosmopolitan city. As trade and taxes came in from every new acquired province, people travelled to Rome, bringing new ideas and perspectives to the city, ideas that were soon picked up by the more liberal elements in the patrician class and incorporated into the Roman way of thinking. This isn't surprising. The Roman method of ruling their expanding territories always was to allow local power structures, bureaucracies, traditions and practices to continue and to be assimilated into the Roman governance structure. This all within reason, of course, with any actual dissent crushed as efficiently as possible. And no external thought had more influence than the Hellenistic. Each methodology is represented in the effect it has on the brothers in the play. Aeschylus is irresponsible and shows no thoughtfulness for others, thanks to having been spoilt by Mikio. Setsifo has little self-confidence and only comes into his own when he deceives his father, whose strict discipline is the cause of his problems. However, and as we've seen before, Terence is keen to point out through Mikio's commentary that both sons are good to the core. He says, You may be anxious for them not to be so profligate with money, but Demia, you must see that in every other way we grow wiser with advancing years. But the real fault in old age is just this. We all worry about money too much, and in time this will develop in our sons too, just as it does for everyone. It's in the brothers that we see what are probably Terence's most complex characters in Demia and Mikio, and one could even say there's some subtlety in them. They both represent types that are familiar to us, but with some additions. So Demia is the cantankerous old man stock character, the man from the country, with all the baggage that brings with it. His type goes right back to the misanthrope, but Terence also makes sure that we understand that he sees his benefits as part of the rights that a father has, so although the character is Greek, he also carries the baggage of the Roman paterfamilias. Mikio is the Athenian bachelor, despite being in his 60s, which also carries implications of liberal attitudes and free thinking. Ultimately, and by his own admission, his methods attempt to make his adopted son his best friend. But at times he just comes across as ineffective, unwilling to put up with anything to plot the easiest course through life but neither are so confident in their methods that they do not have concerns about their influence on the sons. Most notably for all his liberal attitudes, Mikio reprimands Aeschylus sharply when he thinks he's about to abandon his duty to the slave girl. 
where Demir could have been just the stock old man character, in addition to these standard traits, he has elements of cunning in his change of heart at the end of the play, and a genuine concern for his sons. In the end, he feels he has shown that Mikio's methods are flawed, while accepting that his are not perfect either. Now, we might disagree that he really has proven that, or that he's capable of softening his own outlook to the benefit of his sons, but the straightforward reading is that this is what Terence wants us to believe will happen. As author, he seems to be espousing a middle way that takes the best of these two methodologies, shown as they are to their extremes in the play, which can then be used to mould good, responsible citizens. However, if we think it's unlikely that Demir can really change that easily, then the ending is laced with irony, and the humour is really in the deft way Demir turns the tables on Mikio and the enjoyment he takes in doing that. Terence's sympathies, I would say, lie more with Mikio than Demir, who is the butt of the jokes and ridiculed by the likes of Cyrus for the greater portion of the play. The way he's sent around town with deliberately complex directions is really quite cruel, and it's only if we accept the ironic reading at the end of the play that he's given any measure of success. Remembering that Terence was still young when he wrote the play and was supported by those with a liking for the Hellenistic mindset, I don't find this in the least bit surprising. The early scene with Sanyo, the slave trader, that apparently caused Terence so much trouble, was certainly worth whatever it cost him. The banter between Sanyo, Cyrus and the two sons individually is fun, and also it establishes some central markers in the characters of Iskinus and Setsifo. Arrogance when dealing with inferiors for the former, and lack of self-confidence in the latter. Sanyo portrays himself as a legitimate businessman, but is treated scornfully, clearly being regarded as not much above the slaves he trades in. There's no attempt at social commentary here. The character and the scene are there for comedy, and particularly the interaction with Cyrus, the household slave. He is the cunning slave stock character, even showing the common traits of greed for money and food, but he's not used to drive the plot in the same way as we've seen in Plautus. It's more that he's a useful tool at points where the plot needs a push, rather than being the driver for the entire action. There are no multiple deceptions that run the length of the play going on here, but he does still provide some of the best comic moments. It is still, I think, a good part for the comic actor and probably would have been seen as such. The other minor characters are just used for plot purposes and are not developed as characters. But we shouldn't forget the unseen Pamphyla, rushed from labour pains to a wedding ceremony in no time at all. I wonder how the offstage births in Roman comedy were received. Birthing was a dangerous business in those days, but the young mothers don't die in Roman comedy. Did the audience find the necessary offstage birth amusing in its theatricality, or did they worry for the characters and the outcome of the birth? It's yet another impenetrable of Roman comedy. The Brothers does not give us answers to the problems it discusses, but I don't think that Terence really expected it to. As the discussion about the intergenerational relationships continue today, and in his time had already existed for a long time, I think he was intelligent enough and maybe had enough advice from others to see that allowing a somewhat ambiguous ending to the play like that was okay. Getting the ideas out there and encouraging the debate was, I think, point enough. The play certainly did resonate. Like other plays by Terence, it was performed until sometime into the 4th century CE, and then picked up in the medieval period for the reasons I've already discussed in previous episodes. And we are still trying to answer the questions it asks today. Next time, we move away from comedy and begin our look at Roman tragedy. 
For that, we start with the life and times of Seneca the Younger, which moves us forward a couple of hundred years or so and into the period of empire. Seneca's life spanned the rule of the Julio-Claudian dynasty under emperors Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius and Nero. It's a period of history that many of you may feel more familiar with, but the story of Roman dramatic tragedy and its main proponent Seneca is generally not as well known as that of its great but flawed emperors. Roman tragedy is a significantly different form of theatre, although it still looked to ancient Athens for its inspiration. So, it's time to move on to the darker side of Roman theatre and take a look at the Roman view of some familiar Greek tales. I look forward to your company next time. If you would like to support the podcast, please find us at patreon.com or ko-fi.com or please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help other theatre folk find us. All support helps keep the lights on here and is gratefully received. Thanks for the support and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime you can contact me by email at thoetp@gmail.com at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.